This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Happy Thursday. You are watching The Hash. And if you're on the go, you are listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I didn't actually say if you're watching it, you're watching it on Coindesk TV. Welcome. We love to have you here. I'm Jen Sinassi. I'm joined today by Wendy O, Adam V. Levine, and Will Foxley. Hey, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Wendy, it's going to be a fun show. You're kicking us off. What do you got? <gasps> Exciting. First, before I do that, can I ask Adam something really quick? Of course. Do you like tacos, Adam? Oh, I'm oh a big God. fan of tacos, yes. Wendy, <laughs> this is what did too I miss much. with that taco thing? What happened That's there? too much. <laughs> Wendy and Zach and just go off about tacos. has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It is cute. Mm-mm. I do love it tacos. It does because you have to much. have lunch breaks. You have to have lunch breaks. Okay, I'm going to get into it because this story is absolutely ridiculous, okay? It makes no sense. Make it make sense. Ethics Watchdog bars U.S. government employees from writing crypto policy if invested. And I believe that this is the de minimis exemption. But basically, federal employees who have invested less than 50000 in a mutual fund with exposure to the crypto sector will still be allowed to work on crypto-related policies. But officials who hold up to 50000 in mutual funds that include crypto companies can still work on policies. If they hold above that, then they can't which I think is kind of counterproductive because don't you want people who are well-versed on how this crypto ecosystem works when you're putting laws into place that could potentially change things? And also, too, this law applies to all federal government agencies, including the United States Treasury, the Federal Reserve, the White House. And apparently there is a Biden tech advisor, Tim Wu, who holds millions of dollars in Bitcoin who will not be able to, to do this. I saw Will's hand go up. So let's get into it. Will, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is a very interesting new regulation for government employees. And this actually matches a lot of conversations in journalism circles as well. A lot of mainstream media outlets don't allow their reporters to hold assets for conversations that they're having with people. So if you're covering like airplane stocks, typically you're not allowed to hold airplane stocks in your portfolio. Or at the very least, you have to heavily disclose that you are long or short certain stocks. Coindesk has its own rules and regulations for how much crypto you can hold, how much you can disclose, stuff like that. And some outlets out there don't allow anyone to hold any crypto, mainstream and crypto rags themselves. So I think a lot of this is just pretty mundane, like you're expected to see this. The interesting thing is when you toss it back to Congress, right, which Congress has tried in the past to regulate itself, tried to regulate itself around equities, stock holdings, and it's never gone through. And there's a lot of people within Congress who have made a lot of money over the last few years with stocks, and I'm sure crypto as well. And they're not necessarily recused from holding those things. This also reminds me of a story from, I think, six months ago or so about Federal Reserve employees who were also making stock choices right before very consequential Fed decisions came out. A lot of those Fed policymakers uh, were asked to resign or just chose to resign themselves after that information came to light. But what you're seeing, Wendy, is basically people with low integrity needing to be pushed into places of integrity. They don't typically are asked to do this. And so now they have to have this ethics guideline go through. Yeah, I'm with Wendy on this one. I read this and I just thought this is silly. I think probably last year we spoke about something similar. And Naomi Brockwell said, well, if you have the U.S. dollar, should you not work on financial policy? 
And so I'm just going to kick it back to Naomi. I think this is silly, but Will, to your point, it makes sense. We've seen this before, and I think it's something that we should have expected. It's just so interesting to me. We see these policymakers, we see Congress, they keep saying, you know, they're looking for more information. They have these committees that are out there gathering information. They're educating themselves. And to me, educating yourself on how something works would start at using it. If we're making policy for end users, wouldn't we want that policy to be made by people who have used that thing that we're trying to regulate so they can understand the real risks associated? So Wendy, I'm with you. But Adam, I saw your hand go up. Yeah, I think that the conversation about this topic has actually been great and has kind of covered both sides of the issue here. The thing that I would add is this about appearance of conflicts of interest more than it is about actual conflicts of interest. And what we see here is an inconsistent application of the policy across multiple sectors, which in reality are quite similar in terms of if you're invested in a thing, well, then you might be predisposed to having, you know, uh, policies and to making rules that are more supportive of the thing that you hold. That's true no matter whether you're talking about crypto or you're talking about, you know, congressional trading or you're talking about any of these other things. The Federal Reserve thing was Federal Reserve Board of Governors. So these are literally the, you know, the smartest, most well-qualified people in the room who are making decisions that drive what markets are going to do in a very real sense over the last number of years due to the monetary policy that we've had, who are then trading on that knowledge in advance. And so again, when this comes out, then you see these types of, you know, like, oh, we should ban this and stuff like that. But the real kind of people who have the power and who really abuse this power, they're never going to regulate themselves against these things. And so you just wind up with this sort of like, well, it's the law so long as it's not a thing that we care about. And if it is a thing that we care about, then we're going to make rules that treat ourselves differently than we would apply to other people. So it's unfortunately consistent that government does this. Power likes power. And power likes to keep power. And that's what you see over and over again with these types of topics. Wendy, back to you. Before I toss it over to you, Adam, for your story, the only difference or the only thing that I want to point out is when I think about cryptocurrency compared to stocks. With crypto, a lot of these projects, they have some sort of utility. Like you actually need to play around with it to understand how it works. Like you can talk about an NFT all you want. You could talk about smart contracts. You could talk about using Ethereum or Solana or Cardano or whatever it is. You could talk about a DAO. You could talk about running nodes. But unless you actually do it yourself, it doesn't necessarily click because we're talking about utilizing something that's intangible as opposed to going to McDonald's or getting on a plane or whatnot. So that's my only gripe that I have is I feel like I would want people who know how this stuff works that actually have played around with it because I'm more of a user. I like to get my hands dirty. That's just me though. But go ahead, Adam. So I'll, I'll take us to our next story in just a second. But a real quick note. There's been a line of thinking very much similar to what you just said there, that it would be better to have people making the rules who understand the technology in a way that is more kind of actionable than like some sort of high level technical understanding, but is instead like understands the nuances of the thing. That was the story behind SEC chair Gary Gensler. He went into kind of the private sector, taught about blockchain, was very much recognized as an expert got into power in a position of power, uh, you know, to actually regulate the space and has been worse than the regulators who didn't know what they were doing, has not added any extra clarity. So, I mean, like you, I, I could give you a laundry list of examples like this of, of people who know better, but when they're put in a position of power intentionally or at least seemingly intentionally do the opposite of the thing that you would want. But what, what are you, you thinking? Man. I mean, well, it's, that's, just, that's, just because, that's because the SEC is currently battling against Ripple and they do not want to disclose 
a lot of different things to the public or during the case. So that's the only thing that I'm going to say about that. We'll talk about it more on my channel. I actually should have you guys on to debate this more because I could go on Ooh. about this topic like, like a the long, after long hours? Time. Yeah, we should do after hours. hours. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. Okay, cool. So turning to our next story and the always saucy topic of decentralized autonomous organizations or DAO governance, MakerDAO, the smart contract-based over-collateralized lending protocol, saw its most participation ever in a vote earlier this week. The vote brought up some interesting questions. The results ended up pitting venture capitalists like A16Z and Paradigm in favor of the controversial proposal against founder of MakerDAO and CEO Rune Christensen, whose governance token holdings represent more than a quarter of the total vote. The reason I think that this is worth discussing today has little to do with the actual proposals, which are controversial unto themselves and a little bit technical. But the dynamics, I think, of what we're seeing here, this is one of the more mature kind of DAOs that really actually does stuff. And effectively, what we see here is the biggest holders battling it out for directional control, while most, more than two-thirds in this particular case, don't appear to care because they didn't vote. So it's a system that oh, I think we're seeing increasingly compared to either kind of on the one hand, traditional politics, or on the other side, like a messier, transparent corporate boardroom environment. And Will, I saw your hand go up, so I'll toss to you first. I mean, what, what's kind of your read here? Yeah, this is a very technical subject, so I'll probably skim over that a little bit and just keep it high level. The first place, like I love MakerDAO. I think it's a very interesting project. I don't think there's a lot of projects with the history of being a DAO, working through all problems that are incorporated with the DAO, working through emergencies and being successful through it. They've been operating, I think, since like 2016, 2017. Probably the only decentralized asset-backed stablecoin really out there. There's a few others that are trying to get there, but most people within crypto know about MakerDAO. They know about DAI. They maybe even interacted with it at some point or done some sort of token flip with it. So it's a great project. The question with it, and the question has always been, how is it controlled and how decentralized is the maker token behind the whole project? So MakerDAO is a DAO, like you said, Adam, decentralized autonomous organization is controlled by the MKR token. That token can be bought and sold on the open market. And oftentimes that token is held by VC interests, by founders, or just normal plebs like you and I who might have a bag of MKR or moon bag like Wendy likes to say. Those tokens, those moon tokens, typically it's not enough to do anything. But these VC holders or the founders, they often have a lot of tokens and can make decisions for the protocol. And sometimes those decisions are great. Sometimes they make the correct decisions. Sometimes they also make the wrong decision and they make choices that go the wrong way. Over the last few years, we've seen Rune Christensen, who founded MakerDAO, has been an active proponent in it. He's been trying to somewhat consolidate control around a few initiatives, trying to lead MakerDAO into the future he wants. Seems that VCs have a different idea, right? And they also have a stake in the protocol because they hold the token. So what we're seeing is like a, a clash between founders and VCs over a protocol, which is not new to the crypto space that happens, but it is different in the fact that MakerDAO has a product market fit. A lot of these other crypto tokens out there, there's been clashes between VCs and founders, but it doesn't really matter because it's just them holding the bags. But people care about MakerDAO because people use it. It upholds a lot of DeFi, so it does matter. I'm interested to see where this goes. I think it's a long-term project, just like you were saying. I think we're going to see this information kind of come out over the next 12 months, and then we'll see like the direction for MakerDAO. But to get an update like this, I think it kind of tells you where MakerDAO is within the DeFi stack. Wendy, I'll throw it up to you. One of the things I want to say is I believe that Celsius just paid back their collateralized loan from MakerDAO. So Wendy puts on her tinfoil hat sometimes, and I like to look at different factors. Was it like a scheduled time for them to vote or did it happen to have to do with Celsius? There's no confirmation on that. I am just thinking outside the box bit. 
The thing that I don't like about DAOs is, again, we're seeing people with money that are in control here. And I think that that's very problematic because DAOs are supposed to be decentralized and everybody's supposed to get a say and they're supposed to kind of be democratic, or at least that's what we're told. So it becomes problematic to me when you have these people with all this money, because let's face it, the masses look up to people with money. They think that they know better. They think that they're you know, a higher status than them. That's why we have this wealth gap. So it's a little bit problematic to me. I don't like that aspect. And again, we're starting to see these companies that started off as you know supposed to be decentralized. We're starting to see them kind of operate like a centralized entity. The only difference between an actual traditional TradFi company or corporation and the DAOs is that we can actually see what's happening on chain, which brings a little bit more transparency. But again, I still think that we're very, very early with DAOs and we do have an opportunity to make them a little bit more democratic and level the playing field out. And I'm going to throw this over to Jen because I know this is our get down. Is this my get down? I, I just, don't know. I, I get down. I just felt like saying the, that. All the letter topics. Uh, no, that was a great transition. So disclosure, I work for a lab that's a core contributor to BitDAO as a content director. And I think this topic of, of governance is one that we've been having on this show a lot over the past weeks. And it's one that's happening in the DAO community, right? When you have institutional investors and VCs who have either done a token swap or who have invested in your DAO, they hold large bags. They have controlling power of your DAO. It's very similar, not only in the crypto industry, it's just similar to business and startups. It's like giving up equity to your company, right? And this isn't new. Founders have been battling with investors for eons. And I think that they will continue to do that. And I think the idea behind decentralized autonomous organizations is one that is great and one that we are working towards. But it is impossible, I think, in the current state of our world to have an organization that is decentralized. You have to have a legal entity if you want to enter into any kind of real world contract. And so there are a lot of problems I think that the DAO ecosystem has to solve. I've said this before, I think it's a very clever and innovative way to manage money that has been piled together by a bunch of different people. It's a really quick way to bring money together and allocate those funds. And we're just going to have to see. I think a lot of these problems aren't going to be solved for years, but it will be interesting times ahead. All right, we're going to talk about a big hack. So the Ronin hack was one of the biggest DeFi hacks in history. $540 million was lost in crypto. It turns out that this was the result of a fake job ad. So according to the block, sources revealed that a senior engineer at Sky Mavis, the developer of Axie Infinity, was duped into applying for a job that didn't exist via LinkedIn. So after several interviews, they were made a generous offer and they were emailed a PDF. Once this PDF was downloaded, spyware infiltrated Ronin systems. And from there, hackers took over four out of nine of the validators. This is a crazy story that all started on LinkedIn. I didn't think that these kinds of crazy things could start on LinkedIn. And so as I read this, I was freaked out. Will, I'm going to pass this over to you. What the heck? <laughs> Don't download attachments. Everyone always has it. No one listens. They just keep doing it anyways. But there's a reason for it. You might destroy a $540 million network. Right? That's a tough cost for a quick download. The story is really interesting. Shout out to the block for good reporting on this story. Really interesting to see how you can get from the Web2 world and just trying to talk to a recruiter on LinkedIn all the way to destroying an entire DeFi gaming ecosystem. And Ronin was huge, right? This whole Axie Infinity game was huge news last year. It was like the beacon of GameFi from November onwards. It started struggling with the rest of the market turning downwards. But in March, when this hack happened, it was like the death knell, right? Like, how do you come back from losing this much money? You've totally lost your credibility as a protocol. 
And then they lost all this money too. It's difficult to come back from this. It seems that now they're using some VC money to try to repair some of the lost funds for the users. But it doesn't seem like there's necessarily enough. I think the article said there's $120 million that they rose in a VC round and they're going to distribute that to people who lost money in this hack. But that's only a fifth of the total that was lost. Adam, I want to throw the story down to you though. Just like on a technical front, it's really interesting. If you look at this network, the Ronin Bridge is a 5 of 10 multi-sig using a validator network. Like A lot of the stuff is just, it's not secure. It's basically AWS. It's nothing like Bitcoin. And it brought down this entire network. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think you set it up perfectly there. From a technical standpoint, what this really reveals is that... So there's always been this tension between decentralization on one side and the ability to scale and have low costs on the other side. And for a long time, that's a thing that has kind of been moving away from security as newer protocols attempt to improve on what we've seen before from the Ethereum ecosystem, from the Bitcoin ecosystem, from all of the other ecosystems that use real forms of decentralization, but have limited throughput. So now Ronin was a technology that was intended to pair directly with uh, Ethereum to allow for people to do very low value transactions and to not have to pay fees. Because again, a large number of the people who played these games actually are based in the Philippines and other areas where the kind of local value scale is significantly lower than in the Western world. So that I think is the biggest takeaway for me about this is the fact that they were able to compromise a single engineer through a somewhat elaborate, but if you think about it, very, very good return on investment, uh, you know, attempt, set up a fake, you know, LinkedIn company, hire somebody to go and do some interviews with, you know, a bunch of people, see who you can get through. And then at the end of that process, these people are all invested, right? They think you're offering them a better deal. And so you infect them at that point. And then from there, you're able to infect half of the validating nodes throughout the network. That means that that one engineer had access to at least half of the validating nodes throughout the network. And that right there demonstrates that this is the pretense of decentralization. It's the pretense of security. And in reality, all it took was compromising a single person in order to get from here to there. So I think there's a lot of lessons to learn in this one. But Jen, what are you thinking? Yeah, I just want to add some info before I pass it off to Wendy. So they got access to four out of the nine validators. And to get access to that last one, they used Axie DAO. So Axie DAO allowed listed Sky Mavis to sign transactions on their behalf last year because they had a really heavy transaction load. And while that was discontinued, the allow list remained. So it just seemed like error after error that was able to be exploited. But Wendy, I'll pass it up to you. There's a lot that's going through my mind when I'm thinking about this. Like, I understand that, you know, Axie is a massive company, but the fact that they only had, I believe you said nine validators, that seems like kind of a small amount. I understand that, you know, you have to do things fast, you have to have people sign fast, but it still seems like not a whole lot when you're looking at the value of the entire Axie Infinity ecosystem. So that's a little bit problematic to me. But then again, I take a step back and I realize that most of the stuff that we're seeing, especially in crypto now, DeFi, Web3, GameFi, whatever, it's technically still in beta. These are startups. Even though these startups are worth like millions, sometimes billions of dollars, they're still startups. They're still points of failure. So that is kind of, you know, that, that's how I take a step back and think about it. I, but also too, the fact that this came from LinkedIn, it just goes to show you can't trust anybody and you should always be putting your links through a sandbox or whatever it may be to make sure that it's safe. And shout out to my team for doing all that stuff to me because I'm sure I don't <laughs> all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Who wants to close on this? It's crazy that we went from LinkedIn to North Korean hackers. It's just like a wild, wild story. <laughs> I have to shout out the block again. And I think that this is just a great story to tell people, like, don't do personal stuff on your work machine. You sign an agreement, you get a work machine, they tell you not to do anything unwork related, and maybe you could have avoided 
a half a billion dollar hack. But Will, take us home. Yeah, I'll take us to the last story, which wish David Morse was on for this segment, but that's okay. We're talking about Nick Carter versus the Bitcoin maximalists. The pretense for this whole conversation is Nick Carter is a venture capitalist at Castle Island Ventures, and his firm made an investment in a Ethereum project, basically a multi-chain project that allows you to log into any website using just your public and private key for any blockchain pretty simple solution for getting away from web two stuff like using Google or Facebook to log into a website. Instead, you're going to use your Ethereum keys or you're going to use your Polkadot keys or whatever else you're going to use. It makes sense. And so Castle Island Ventures put some money into that project. And then the Bitcoin maximalists on Twitter found him and boy, have they been coming for him. And he's been shooting right back. He talked with Bankless, a popular podcast talking about his decision to move away from the Bitcoin maximalist group on Twitter. And I think that should be emphasized very strongly. A lot of these Bitcoin maximalists exist mainly on Twitter. Definitely some sparring words here. Nick says he's moving away from the group, not only because of his image, but also because there's more opportunities outside the group. He noted that a lot of popular thinkers within the Bitcoin space have also made the decision to leave the Bitcoin maximalist group like Eric Walls and Hasu. Adam, I want to throw this one down to you since you've been in the space so long. I mean, you've been around since the early days of Ethereum. You've seen Bitcoin go through the block size wars. And the last year, we've really seen some weird stuff develop. Uh, really, since the advent of Michael Saylor coming to Bitcoin, I think we've seen this Bitcoin maximalism take up to another step where you have this ethical debate around Bitcoin being the only coin that should matter. What's your take on it? My perspective on this personally has always been that Bitcoin uses kind of blockchain ownership characteristics, which is a better way to track who owns what stuff on the internet to track money. It's really valuable to be able to track money in a native internet way. But at the same time, it's useful to track lots of things in a native internet way. And that really, to me, is what tokens, especially tokens that aren't directly tied to currency applications, mean. So I've never been a big believer in the Bitcoin maximalism use case. I look at the entire space and people have always sort of identified me as a Bitcoiner, not so much these days as they used to, but that's a label I also reject because I, my general sense is that to the extent that you adopt some type of ideological identity is to the extent that you make it painful for yourself to ingest new information that might sort of disagree with your beliefs there. And I'm a big believer in keeping a very, very flexible worldview that it can incorporate new pieces of information. And that's what I see there. You know, I have to say... The Bitcoin maximalist position has been probably one of the most profitable ways to deal with the space uh, over the years. And so my perspective about keeping sort of all my options open is tempered by the fact that my lack of faith in these types of things has meant that I've missed tons and tons of opportunities to make a bunch of money. So there's been positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement on kind of both sides of the issue that would push people towards believing in this way. And also as a trading strategy, it's pretty good because you don't do anything. You just buy Bitcoin and then you do nothing else and you don't take any giant bets. And kind of the bet in the space has always been, will Bitcoin be something that matters? If it matters, it's going to matter a lot and the value will be much higher. And if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter, right? And the, the value is what it is. And you know that's a temporary thing. So that's kind of the disagreement between sort of that side of things. So I'm very sympathetic to these types of viewpoints. And I actually have not been following the sort of uh, exodus that Nick is talking about in that article. But I do think that you get these types of characteristics. And David compares it to a cult. I think that's a little bit poking at it. I think that it's just people who believe in this way. And that's a reasonable thing, so long as they're not attempting to force that belief on other people. And I think that's where you get into the kind of conflicts that we're seeing here with Nick. 
Nick can believe whatever he wants to believe. Maximalists shouldn't care. And the fact that they do care begets that they care because they're concerned that maybe their viewpoint isn't correct and they don't want people competing with it. That's the way I look at the issue. What do you think, Wendy? So I've got a lot to say on this, but I will keep it short. I don't like any type of toxic behavior. I think it's counterproductive. I also think if there were no altcoins, if there were no NFTs, if there weren't anything else besides Bitcoin, Bitcoin would not be where it's at today. So I do think that maximalists should kind of thank the altcoin community in some retrospect, because look at all these cool things that we have built with Bitcoin. Would we have Lightning Network? I don't know. So when I look at crypto, I look at it as a way for people to come together, for people to improve their quality of life. And when you're being toxic, when you're being nasty, when you're making people feel stupid, and you're making people feel like they're not important and they don't matter, it's a very, very deterring. I don't vibe with it. I don't like it. And another thing that makes me kind of question is like, Bitcoin is for freedom. Okay. And it's supposed to be anti-censorship, but then you're sitting and telling somebody else what they can and can't do. And then when you start getting nasty, harassing people, verbal things, all kinds of stuff, it just makes you look really cringe and it makes you look uneducated and also makes you look unapproachable. So at the end of the day, you're kind of losing the mission at sight, which is to get people to own their money, to have control, to improve their quality of life. If you want to sit and be toxic on the internet, that's a personal problem for you, but it's something I'm not interested in at all. And like Adam said, it is very, very profitable because we do know that some of these Bitcoin maximalists have made quite a bit of money with the Ethereum ICO and other altcoins. They just don't talk about it publicly. Wendy, I think we got to wrap it there. Bitcoin Maxi is going to maxi. Just before we wrap, though, I want to say anyone watching this who owns a taco restaurant and would like to sponsor The Hash, we are all ears. We love tacos. <laughs> Help us out. We'll get you the sponsorship. It's Thursday. It's not even Tuesday. Show. That's yeah, Sunday. We're the right getting day ready for Tuesday. In LA, some <laughs> okay. of the taco shops, they do tacos, not on Taco Tuesday, but maybe Taco Wednesday or Thursday. Mm. Well, there we go. We got Taco Thursday tomorrow. We got to go. We're going to be back on Friday. Thank you, everyone, for watching. I'm Jen. That's Wendy. We got Adam over there and Will. We are The Hash, and we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.